0: The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Yekasil J.D. Colmanson now presents his lecture, Assess Your Spiritual Side. Welcome to today's presentation assessing our spiritual side, my name is Yaku J.D. Kalmanson and uh, I'd like to share some of my experiences in the worlds of behavioral health, chaplaincy in the correctional facility environment, and uh, having done some chaplaincy in the military arena as well. And what a lot of those experiences have taught me was at the core root of a lot of human ills, is a fundamental fog around the domain of our personalized spirituality and how it integrates with the other various spheres of our life. So when we talk about spirituality, it's important first and foremost to pause and reflect on what it's not necessarily. In today's day and age, a lot of people when they hear spirituality Their radar immediately goes up and there's a certain resistance to it because people tend to think of spirituality within the context of dogma and religion. You know, they say a story about Sammy and Sadie who uh, were an old couple in their 80s and they were incredibly health conscientious. And uh, Sadie was meticulous about everything being organic and grass-fed. They would exercise every day. They did yoga. They were at the fitness club. And then one day tragically they both get hit by a car and they die. They come up to heaven and Peter the angel welcomes them and he tells them I want to show you to your quarters this gorgeous Mediterranean palatial estate overlooking the ocean and Sammy starts to sweat a little bit how am I going to pay for this and Peter says it's it's heaven there's, there's no issue here and then he shows him the golf course, and then Sammy's again wondering what membership fees will look like. And Peter says, Sammy, if stop sweating, it's heaven. It's going to be okay. And then there laid out in the gorgeous kitchen is a magnificent array of every delectable exotic delicacy. And then Sammy starts looking uncomfortable and he says, Peter, I hate to uh, be the buzzkill again, but Sadie and I have been so conscientious health wise for over a decade and Peter says, Sammy, I, how many times am I going to tell you? This is heaven. Nothing that you eat here will harm you or will cause you any detrimental health effect. And now Sammy is very frustrated. And he looks at Sadie and he says, you and your brand muffins, we could have been here 10 years ago. And I, I, I share that because even today, when you talk about spirituality, people immediately whether they're religious or not, whether they have a formal religious education or not, they tend to view it within the prism in the context of heaven or hell of guilt and responsibility. But very seldom is it perceived within the space of wellness, of holistic wholesomeness. When we talk about spirituality, there's a very beautiful observation that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory made, and that had to do with the difference between power and influence. So power and influence are very often conflated and equated. If you're powerful, then you're influential. If you're influential, then you must be powerful. But the truth is when you think about it for a moment, they're very different. If you take someone's power, and you distribute it to nine other people, they've lost 90% of their power. If you take somebody's influence, their message, their ideals, their inspiration, and you distribute it to nine other people, you've multiplied their influence by 90%. And that's why spirituality is so often associated with candles. Even in today's contemporary culture, candles, the warmth, the glow, helps create an ambiance and a setting of spirituality. Because candles and fire represent the one material creation that can give and can give and can give and will not lose one iota of its source material. And that is what spirituality is, like its namesake, it's matters of spirit, and it doesn't lend itself to the restrictions and the limitations of what our material reality might possess. So what I'd like to do in today's presentation, and you have in front of you a spirituality assessment which we use across all of the levels of care that we provide, whether it's adolescents or whether it's adults or whether it's folks who are struggling with chemical dependency or those who are here for psych stabilization or eating disorders, PTSD, trauma, anxiety, this becomes a very seminal feature in the biopsychosocial assessment is ask certain questions that help provoke and compel us to encounter truths that we may have never stumbled upon they say this story about uh, a fellow in Israel who comes to the mechanic because his car is not working and the mechanic says, your brakes are shot. He says, how much is it going to cost to fix it? And he says, 6,000 shekel. The fellow says, I can't afford 6,000 shekels. Mechanic says, what do you want me to do? He says, fix the horn. And that is very often what happens in an environment where people come with acute problems and the recovery looks very daunting and arduous, we'll find the horn. But the truth is that it has to be addressed at the fundamental existential level. And that's what some of these questions help folks, even people who've never ever been surrounded or exposed to any form of organized religion or spirituality, what these questions help do is they help us encounter these ideals and values in a way that we are released from our resistance and our dogma. There was a Nobel Prize winner named Isidore Rabi, and he won the Nobel Prize in chemistry. And when they asked him why He thought that he won the prize, as opposed to all of his colleagues and all the other kids in his class who were bright, all the other Jewish kids from Brooklyn who were smart and they came from households that championed education and intellectual achievement. He said something very profound. He said, When we came home from school every single day, all of our mothers waited at the doorstep to greet us with cookies and chocolate milk, and they all asked their children, what great thought, what great chiddish, what great novelty did your teacher teach you today? My mother was the only one who asked me, what great question did you ask today? And he says it was that value system to never take anything for granted at the face value level, to always pursue truth relentlessly in an exhaustive way, leaving no stone unturned until I get to that truth. That is what led me to my career in science as a chemist, to question all the pervasive assumptions of the time, and ultimately to the discovery that he made, which won him the Nobel Prize. And so that's is the nature of the assessment to get us to relentlessly pursue our own truth even if it might be difficult and it might not be natural. So the questions therefore become interventions in a sense because knowing the problem or knowing the reality of our inner workings is half of the healing and the cure and it helps foster awareness And the last item on that slide, asking the right question the right way. So I want to give you an example that comes up in my world a lot. So we're treating folks who are struggling with chemical dependency, struggling with mind-altering substances. They come in and they're suffering from very strong medical post-acute withdrawal symptoms. They're shivering, they're shaking, they're nauseous, they're not eating, they're sleepless. And that is usually what leads them to the rock bottom to checking themselves into treatment. Several days pass through their detoxification process and now they start feeling a lot better. So physically they start feeling much more regulated and normal. Now one of the questions that we ask them is, what would you rate your cravings at? And in order for them to qualify for medical necessity for continued treatment, their cravings have to be above a seven on a scale of one to 10. Now physically, they're feeling really good and for the first time in weeks, months, or years, they're feeling really regulated. And so their response will typically be two or three. And so this posed a big problem because they are not accurately reporting how they feel because they're getting distracted by their physical equilibrium, which they're experiencing for the first time in a long time. So what I instructed the staff was to ask them, if you were to find yourself right now in a motel room with a few grams of heroin in one of the drawers of the nightstand, and you were to be in that motel room for 48 hours straight, what's the likelihood that you would end up relapsing. When phrased like that, the answer is always invariably for for them in their mind space, 10 out of 10. So that is a very extreme example for a very niche demographic, but the way we ask ourselves the question, we have to appreciate the sensitivity and the ability to cut through the emotional fog and to get to the core of the, of the truth. And one of those ways in which we're able to ask ourselves really deep existential questions and not get distracted by the temporal here and now is when we for a second focus on questions of life and death and morbidity. There's a great song, a country song by Tim McGraw and it won the Country Song of the Year Award in 2003. And the chorus, is about a fellow who thinks that he has a life terminal cancer. And he, feel, and he thinks that he's facing death within a month. And so he goes skydiving, and he goes Rocky Mountain climbing, and he goes, he says, I love deeper, and I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness i have been denying. He said I was finally the husband, that most of the time I wasn't, and I became a friend that a friend would like to have. And he concludes that someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. And that is another type of question that is asking it in the right way. The right way meaning that it elevates our prism and worldview to not being stuck in the corn maze, but seeing it from the bird's eye view. And that is what I invite you to look at in the spirituality assessment in front of you And I would like to go through some of those questions, elaborate a little bit on some of them, and then we'd love to hear your thoughts at the end. Who is the most spiritual person in your life? The answer to that question reveals a lot about how you define spirituality. If somebody were to ask you directly define spirituality, more often than not, we will regurgitate a lot of the messages or the stereotypes or the, general, the, the, the uh, generalizations that we've been used to hearing from when we're children. But when somebody asks you to identify the most spiritual person in your life, we start to think outside of the box or outside of those stereotypes or generalizations. And for the first time we encounter our very real and authentic personalized view of spirituality. So if you think for a moment, who is the most spiritual person in your life? Let's all do that for a moment. Take a few seconds. And the key is not to think too long, because then we're consciously intervening with uh, trying to reconcile that individual with a lot of the regurgitated ideas that we hold. Now you have to ask yourself, what makes them so spiritual? What are the characteristics that make that individual so spiritual? And by defining those characteristics, we've encountered certain properties that we feel belong to the spiritual domain that we might have encountered for the first time. The answer to this question is not objective and it has to be subjective because only if it's your answer and it's your truth will you discover your associations with how you believe spirituality to be. The next question on the spirituality assessment is what do you want to be remembered for? And the reason why this is another question that helps us elevate ourselves from the emotional fog, the corn maze, and see life, our life, from the bird's-eye view, is because it takes us away from the fleeting, temporal here and now, and it compels us to see ourselves in the larger context of what we really believe in. There was a chemist, and some of you may know this story. His name was Alfred Nobel. And one of his many inventions was dynamite. Now dynamite, in its day, became the largest weapon of mass destruction. Alfred Nobel was a wealthy man. And he belonged to a family of scientists. And his brother, who lived in Paris, passed away. Now the press mistakenly thought that it was Alfred who passed away. And as it is with prominent people, they have their obituaries written out for them before they die. And so the screaming headline that Alfred Nobel woke up to one morning was to read his own obituary saying, the merchant of death has died. Referring to the fact that he was somehow responsible and culpable for all of the many deaths that resulted from his invention of dynamite. Now, this headline shook him to the core, that this was going to be how he would be remembered. He didn't have to ask himself that question. The press answered it for him. And so he was, res- he was inspired, to take whatever remaining years of his life, resources that he possessed, and to invest it in motivating human excellency for posterity. And that is how the Nobel Prize Foundation was created. So what we want to be remembered for really helps us understand and personalize what it is that means most to us, what we value truly. Now, I want to do the following exercise with you, And, and, and let's all try to do this in a personal way for a moment. If you meet somebody in an elevator at a social function, and you have between one and two minutes to introduce yourself and to describe yourself, I want you all to close your eyes for a second and try and imagine what it is that you would say in that 60 seconds, 120 seconds, what it is that you would default to in describing yourself. How much of that answer, description and response matches with the way you want to be remembered. For everybody, it's going to be different. It can completely not match up, right? It's hard to share with somebody who you just met how you want to be remembered, which is deeply personal. But for others, it could partially match up. And yet for others, it could completely coincide and align. And the more that they do match up, the more congruence and alignment we find ourselves living at the most external of levels and unifying our deepest, most heartfelt values and sentiments that we would like to live up to. What we want to be remembered for also helps us bridge the gap between our perceived selves and our actual selves. Richard Nixon once lamented why the entire country was infatuated with Kennedy. And he says, well, John F. Kennedy is young, he's charismatic, he's handsome, he's an orator, he's powerful, he's wealthy, and everybody looks at him and they see what they would like to be in their dreams, but then they look at me and they see who they are. And so what we would like to be remembered for when we think about it, when we ponder it, and when we make it a part of our conscious thought process, it helps us bridge that gap between what we would like to be and the way we are. The next question on the spirituality assessment is what are you most proud of in life? Pride is something that we have to unpack. Pride is an existential term. You know, if you go to Israel and you're lucky enough to get lost and you ask an Israeli for directions, he'll tell you, go straight and go straight. And then you're going to see a right. Don't take the right, take the left. So, let's talk about what pride is not. Pride is not the things that foster, cultivate, and feed our ego. And we have to create, first and foremost, a critical distinction between things that feed our ego and things that make us proud. Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, the values of Judaism, really stood in strong, stark contradistinction to the values of the early underpinnings of Western civilization of Rome. And in one of the ways that they stood out was Rome, and even before Rome, Greece, they really championed glory. Glory in architecture, in philosophy, in athletics, whether it was the Colosseum, or whether it was the Olympics, or whether it was the beautiful Roman pillars, or the Greek philosophers, glory was something that was valued and prioritized. But the glory that Rome and Greece stood for was a zero-sum game was the type of hedonistic glory that the more I have, the less you have. If we're both authors and we're vying to be in that coveted list of the New York Times bestselling list, I can't truly vie for your success because that would undermine my chances of making it to the list. There are only 400 or 500 on the Forbes list. So the zero sum game is, very, is embedded in the very nature of Western glory. And Western glory becomes the metric that validates us and makes us feel better about ourselves. Judaism, on the other hand, subscribing to the theological principle that we are all created in the divine image has a very different take on glory. Glory is intrinsic, not extrinsic. It's there before we do or accomplish or achieve, and in fact, It's only because of that innate and inherent glory that we're able to do the beautiful things that we do in life. And so therefore, the things that give us pride are the things that we realize we're only capable of because of that built-in divine sense of glory. There are three principles that I want you to ponder on that would help one distinguish whether something that gives us pride is being fostered and fueled by our ego or by our divine innate sense of glory. Three Ds. The first one is distracting, dependency, and deficiency. If whatever brings us a sense of achievement and accomplishment never truly feels like it is enough, it's temporary, it's fleeting, it has an expiration date on it, then we know it's being driven by our egos. I once heard a beautiful description of ego. Ego, in a sense, is us distracting ourselves from ourselves. What does that mean? A lot of us do not like to be alone alone with our thoughts. And even if we don't want to hear what the radio has to say, we'll turn it on. Or we'll do something else to distract us from ourselves. And sometimes, in a more sophisticated and elevated version of it, pursuing certain degrees or certain financial metrics of success or certain societal Western metrics of success is a way for us to distract ourselves from ourselves to make us feel good about ourselves without having to address the existential question of ourselves. So the first hallmark of aspiration and ambition driven by ego versus the innate divine sense of glory is the sustainability of it. Will it last or is it a distraction from ourselves? And distractions never last. They never endure. There's a beautiful story about a famous author, C. Lewis, who was once invited to a party of a hedge fund manager. And at the party, the wealthy man taunts him in front of the others and says, you know, I make more in one day than you've probably made from all your books combined. And he responded very poignantly, that I have something that you will never have. Surprised, he looks up and he says, what is that? How could you have something that I don't have? And he said simply, enough. That's what I have. And you'll never have that. Because you're chasing something. And futility. There's a very beautiful in iteration of this idea in the Bible, in the Chumash. Yaakov and Esav. Yaakov gives his brother a gift, seeking to appease him. And Esav says, Yeshli Rav, I have a lot. Yaakov, when he, Esav asks him about his position in life, says Yeshli Kol, I have everything. I have enough. For Esav, I have a lot, but there's always more than a lot. And Yaakov responded, like C. Lewis, I have everything, I have enough because I do not rely on my material abundance, I do not rely on my academic prowess, on my social status to be my source of validation and affirmation. So when we ask ourselves what are we proud of?' First and foremost, not referring to the things that are driven by our ego, the things that ultimately are distractions, and not enduring and sustainable. The second principle was dependency. When we are motivated to do certain things, to achieve certain accomplishments, to pursue certain ideals or ambitions because of our ego, because of this distraction, that falls into the second category, that our relationship with that achievement and accomplishment becomes unhealthy and becomes one of dependency. I need it. We confuse our net worth with our self-worth. I want to share with you a story. There was a of chassid, pious man who used to get up every day between the afternoon and evening service and talk about trust and confidence that God will take care of us. We ought not to be anxious, we ought not to live in fear. We have to live with the Hebrew word as bitachon, trust in God. And he talked about this day in, day out. And he happened to be a wealthy man, he had a shoe factory, he was a successful businessman, And one fellow in the back would always cynically dismiss whatever he said by thinking to himself, it's very easy for a fellow like that in his position with his material cushion of wealth to preach to everybody else to trust in God because he doesn't have to worry about a mortgage or about tuition or about any of the other material constraints that we're preoccupied with. Anyhow, one day, the government confiscated this fellow's entire business. And in one day, he was transformed from a millionaire to a pauper. And the next day, he gets up to speak between the afternoon and evening service. And the fellow on the back is silently anticipating the speech, rubbing his hands with glee. Let's see his punctured bubble. Let's see how the enthusiasm has vanished. But sure enough, he gets up, and with the same fire, he speaks about trusting in God. And if anybody had not known what had occurred to him within the last 24 hours, they would never guess that his entire life, life's fortunes had changed. And so the naysayer and the cynic comes up to him after the speech and he says, I need to ask you for an apology. I need to ask you for forgiveness. All these years, I've been cynically dismissing the sincerity and the legitimacy of everything you said because I felt that you were able to utilize your material wealth as a way for you to live your life without worry. And now I see that I was wrong. How How could you How could you get up at the podium and speak about trusting God with the same enthusiasm today, when you have nothing as you did yesterday, when you had everything? And he responded by citing a beautiful halachic legal principle that stems from the laws of prayer. When we daven and we pray the Amidah, the Esrei, we ought to stand. And the Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch, says that one may lean under certain conditions. And what, is those condition, what do those conditions look like? Well, if we remove that which you're leaning upon and you fall, that type of leaning is not okay. But if you lean on the pillar and we remove it and you stay standing, that is a leaning that is okay, even during the Amidah, even during the prayer of the Shemun Asrei. And it's quite rational. When you lean, is it to the point where you're not really standing and that which is supporting you becomes the foundation of your strength and you are completely dependent and reliant on that? Or is it something that helps you stand, but you really are on your own footing? And that is what he told the fellow. I related to my wealth. Of course I leaned on it for support and it enhanced my life and it made things easier, but never to the point where I became so enwrapped and enveloped that I began to identify with it, becoming dependent and reliant on it, which would lead to me falling apart if it were to be taken away from me. And that is the second principle of accomplishments and achievements stemming and originating from ego or versus pride the third principle is deficiency is how limiting is it when ego becomes the drive or the foundation for my ambition then it boxes me into the arena and the domain of what I am pursuing and does not allow me the space to be diverse, multifaceted, multidimensional, well-rounded, and holistic. Moses Montefiore famously responded to the King of England when he asked him, what are you worth? By giving him a certain number, which was a lot lower than his financial worth at the time. And when the king asked him and called him out on that, the king said, you know and we know that you're worth way more than that. And he responded famously, you ask me what I'm worth. And I'm only worth what I've given to charity. Everything else could be taken away. And these are the type of things that we answer and we respond to what are we proud of in life? We are proud of existential achievements and accomplishments of being, the type of person we wanna be, not necessarily the way we describe ourselves in the elevator. The next question, and I don't know if we'll get to all of them today, is what are your biggest regrets in life? Regrets typically compel us to think outside of the temporal here and now, the cosmetic, and to focus on things that really matter, that are existential. The things that might give us shame. You know, Of the three toxic emotions, fear, anger and shame, shame is by far the most lethal and paralyzing because it doesn't attack a certain attribute or characteristic or behavior, but shame is an attack on our existence. What do we most regret? Most typically, it's not going to be about a lost, hedonistic opportunity, a lost vacation, or not having gone to a certain restaurant. The regrets will tend to focus on the things that really are important, matters of spirit, matters that we care about, that we don't necessarily consciously pay lip service to. And even when some of the things that we most regret in life can seem to be materialistic. For example, if you regret not having invested in a certain venture, you have to ask yourself the follow up why? And that why becomes so important because it really exposes an entire new layer of depth within your own character. You know, very quickly, there was a, a fellow who was uh, put in prison by the Soviets and his mail is obviously censored. He sends his wife a letter that I hid all the money from the Russian IRS, and I buried it in the backyard. Of course, the next day, a team of Russian IRS agents show up at the house and dig up the entire backyard from every inch and corner, and nothing. They don't find a thing. The next day, the wife receives a letter. Now go plant the potatoes. So, in life, we have to, and especially with these questions, by asking the why, we get to the follow-up level and layer of truth, which is very revealing. So, if you ask yourself why do you regret not having invested in that opportunity, sometimes the answer might be because of the level of security and prosperity and abundance that this could have afforded you and your family. If you regret harm that you might have afflicted on another individual, What are you really regretting? This regret reminds you that you actually deeply care about others, and that is why you feel so bad about the pain that you caused. So the regret helps you understand what means a lot to you. If you feel like you haven't been the best parent or spouse or friend, what does that reveal to you? Not just regret for the sake of regret, because that is paralyzing and not necessarily healthy, but it reveals to you how much love you have pent up inside you, and therefore you regret that that love wasn't actualized and manifest to the people who you love most. And now we come to the fifth question on our spirituality assessment helping us encounter and compelling us to recognize that there's something more than our hedonistic here and now. What is the most enduring source of pleasure that you've experienced? So I want to share with you a story, because we're very short on time, which really helps frame the response to this question. But for a moment, why don't you each take a few seconds and answer that question for yourselves. The Hasidim, back in the days of Russia, would immerse themselves in a ritual bath every morning. And a father wanting to impress upon his young son a timeless lesson in life, wakes his son up, early in the morning takes him to the frozen riverbed, hacks away at the ice, creates a little space, an opening, and immerses his son in the freezing cold water, and picks his son up, and the son goes, ooh, shivering and cold. And then the father immediately proceeds to wrap and envelop his child with a warm dry towel. And the child goes, ah. And the Father says, if that's the chronology of your feelings in life, you're on the right path. If first comes the discomfort, the toil, the exertion, the hard work, the labor, and then comes the satiation, the satisfaction, the enduring sense of accomplishment, then you are on the right path. But if first comes the ah, the pleasure, the fleeting moment of sensational indulgence, and then comes the hangover the next day, what happened? I feel so bad, why did I say that? That's the wrong path. And so therefore, an enduring source of pleasure becomes a very helpful way to identify matters of spirit which endure and sustain. Last but not least, when you think you're at your breaking point, how do you keep going and what helps you persevere. We're all familiar with Viktor Frankl's best-selling book Man's Search for Meeting and how he describes that even when people were falling like flies at the death march and their bodies were caving into their natural motor limitations, there were a select group of individuals who managed to defy their physical constraints and managed to access Herculean superhuman strength. And where did that stem and emanate from? From meaning, from purpose, from them being attached to something larger than themselves. I want to share with you a quick story. When I was a student in, in the yeshiva in Toronto, on Hanukkah we would go out and we would try and light up the darkness by giving out menorahs. And I had a particular wild and rowdy bunch of friends in the group that we were in. And in our vehicle, they at every red light would jump out and they timed us down to a science. And for about 15 seconds, they would dance, 20 seconds, they would dance in a circle. And as the light was about to turn green, jump back into the car. And I was very happy and proud not to count myself in that group. And I would stay. But listen to the letter that our yeshiva received a couple weeks after Hanukkah this fellow describes and i'm not i don't even know that he was jewish that a couple of weeks prior to that on that particularly cold wintry night he was walking to one of the skyscrapers in downtown toronto to end his life life had dealt him a couple of vicious overwhelmingly painful curveballs all colliding at the same time and he just couldn't handle it he didn't know how he was going to get through and as he's walking a group of hooligans who are dancing senselessly grabbed him into the circle. And for a few seconds, he engaged in an act of joy that was either super-rational or irrational, but definitely didn't make sense to him. And he says that was all it took to give him the room to pause and question whether maybe he could recalibrate and get back from all these problems. That is the fire of a candle that lights up another candle that is a spiritual transmission. And a little bit of light, as we all know, banishes a lot of darkness. And living in the darkness sometimes is comfortable, but is never helpful. You know, there's the addict who writes, that I just read about the dangers of drinking and it scared me, and I've resolved from here on, no more reading. And that's the darkness. That is living in what is comfortable with our stereotypes, with the generalizations. But if we do probe and we do question, we will find a dimension and a sphere within our existence that we may have never knew existed. And we can therefore tap into that reservoir of inner latent spirituality and personalized spirituality and draw upon it as a resource to to help us live our lives in the most optimized way we can. Um, With the brief amount of time that we have, if anybody would like to ask any questions or share answers that they might have had to some of these questions.
1: Thank you, first of all, beautiful, beautiful presentation. When you first mentioned um, spirituality and who is the most spiritual person that you know, my mind right away went to, what is spirituality? And then looking it up real quickly, it really was focusing inward and not on the materialistic outward. But realistically, living in this world, there's such a big focus on materialistic, it's almost like people could talk about spirituality and believe it, but who's actually living it? And what's that fine line between spirituality, where actually they're able to focus on that, and materialistically, which is a necessary component of living in this world, how do you balance the two? It's kind of, I don't know, I'm not, I don't really have a question, it's kind of, I'm just processing, like the integration of both is really the reality of spiritual No, and, that, and,
0: and you're highlighting why these questions become interventions in and of themselves, and they really help us gain a sense of clarity on what's important On our priorities and our values because very often when you ask yourself and you answer the question who's the most spiritual person in your life it's not necessarily the person you respect the most because respect is more often than not shadowed by contemporary societal metrics of success and other things that make us respect somebody but when you ask yourself who's the most spiritual person in your life you're forced to encounter a different set of values, which is so important, and that's why the question is almost as important as the answer. Thank you so much for attending, and I hope you didn't. Please visit myJli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings, and Toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.